Hi everyone. Um, this is a continuation of uh, this series on Leslie Newbegin's Sin and Salvation. Um, so in the past two episodes or podcasts or however we're calling this, um, we talked about um, sin, obviously, um, as per the title, um, but the idea of how man is in a state of contradiction, how sin entered into this world. And now we've, we've uncovered a sense of what sin is in terms of a theological sense of this very abstract sense. But, you know, Brian, like, how does this relate to me? Um, this is like, a, it's like really interesting, everything yeah. that we've been talking about. Um, but how does this relate to me? Um, how is sin specific about me? Like, how does it relate to my everyday life? Yeah, and I think um, chapter three starts to really explore how sin affects us. Um, and it specifically, it focuses on the nature of sin. So before we were talking about sin more in terms of like the biblical story, uh, in this chapter, we're kind of seeing sin's effect on man. And before we talked about it in terms of alienation or contradiction, self-contradiction, uh, alienation from God, alienation from the natural world, alienation from fellow human beings, uh, and alienation from uh, within men and women themselves. We don't understand ourselves. Um, in this chapter, Nubian kind of switches to talk about the nature of sin uh, and how sin is actually a corruption of the nature of man due to the fact that he's become separated and alienated away from God. Okay, and, so yeah, yeah. yeah, so I'm gonna go off of my understanding, or maybe like our primitive understanding of sin. You know, we're saying that like sin is absence of God or being distant from God or however we wanna word that. So, you know, there's the younger me that would go to church and, you know, thinking that sin is, you know, just doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we're like, oh, we got the Ten Commandments, follow that. Um, I think about my parents saying, you know, you, you know your commandments, honor your mother and your father. Um, and that's like more of the practical sense of how we know, how we understand sin. You know, there is this very, like, very uh, theological understanding about how man is now separated from God, now is in a, um, in contradiction, is in a broken relationship from God. But in like a practical sense, you know, I'm going to like, I could just be going to church every day. I could be quote unquote in the presence of God, you know? Um, yeah. So how do we kind of go further than that? Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting about this chapter is that it challenges us in multiple ways when we think about what sin does to us. Uh, you're right. I think for a lot of people who grow up in church, they think of sin as breaking the rules. And sometimes that can lead to like a very harsh legalistic way at looking at Christianity, where Christianity is about following rules. And it seems very strict because in our understanding, we're thinking, well, people are well-intentioned, but they sometimes make mistakes, right? Uh, in okay. in in my core, in my heart, I mean to do the right thing. I'm just making mistakes. 
And uh, when you run in Christian circles or you start uh, reading Christian theology, you come across this term that's called total depravity. And it can okay. be very jarring um, because basically what it says is that our entire, it's not just the outside of me that, that sometimes makes mistakes. It's at the very core of my being. I am corrupt. I, um, even the best things I do are shot through with selfish motives and sinful motives. And that's, that can be very off-putting to people when they hear it. Does that make sense? Are you, yeah. are you tracking what I'm saying? Th yeah. th that makes sense. Um, I guess coming from our of a pragmatic side, um, you know, we can just denounce everything is sinful, you know? Um, yeah. But there has to be some things that are done like in right attention or the right intention or things that are good. Um, but calling everything sin, you know, from a, I guess, uh, coming from a pragmatic uh, side, you know, there, you could still be doing good. Um, and does it really matter that like the intention was bad? Like you can have an evil intention, but have do good things, you know, and people can see like benefit from those good repercussions. Um, so I guess I'm in a, like in a state of, does it really matter of what the intention is as long as you kind of do the right thing and you don't really harm people? Yeah, it's a, it's a good objection. Um, but I think when Newbegin, where Newbegin starts in chapter three is he points out that Jesus did not look at sin the way you're thinking or the way you just laid it out, or the way that we might naturally think about things. Um, he says, so he quotes Jesus saying, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. So uh, I'm reading Nubian here, it's, he says, it's not sufficient to say about our bad deeds and words that they are mistakes. We have to ask, where do they come from? Um, and so you're right to an extent, like what you're saying is, is you're right. Like God is concerned about fruit. Uh, he is concerned about the outward actions. He's looking for the good fruit, for justice, for uh, mm -hmm. treating the natural world right, for treating our fellow human beings right. Um, but the claim that's being made in the Bible uh, is that there is, because we are alienated from God, and because we were created, our nature is to be in relationship with God. To say that our nature has been corrupted means that it, it's kind of definitional. Because we're separate from God, our nature is corrupted. Our nature is, we are meant to be made, we are made for relationship, basically. That's what I'm saying. Uh, we're meant to be in relationship with God. And so, because that relationship has been broken, we are incapable really of ever, ever producing the good fruit that God is looking for. Okay, so my understanding then is that this whole understanding of sin or this dichotomy of good and evil and sin and salvation, it stems from that we were originally designed in perfect relationship with God. And the idea of doing something good or having a good heart or an evil heart um that only makes sense 
when the precondition is that we were designed to be image bearers. We were designed to be in relationship to God. Yeah. Yeah, basically. I mean, the, this entire thing operate, operates, this entire view of understanding sin uh, operates off of like a starting point. And that starting point is what is man created for. Mm. And if you don't agree with the starting point, you can come to very different conclusions. But everyone has to start somewhere, right? And right. the Bible teaches us, the Bible's assertion is that the starting point is man was created for fellowship with God. And the fact that we are not in fellowship with God is a contradiction of our very purpose. And that's what leads to all of the bad effects or bad fruit, the corrupt fruit Jesus is talking about. That's interesting to put it in that it's like uh, our theology or the way in which we understand this is not stemming from doing good or doing evil. It's go even before that in the idea of just our design or what our purpose is. Um, yeah, I mean, the Greek word for purpose that is used a lot in the New Testament is uh, telos or telos. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it. It's T-E-L-O-S. And it has this sense of like the end toward which I am directed. Um, and I think that animates what's happening in this book. The way Newbegin is uh, proceeding with his argument is he's starting with that, that, that starting point, which is beginning with the end in mind, right? Like you might have heard that saying before. And the end in mind is man in fellowship with God, man in relationship with God. Uh, that's what we were created for. So, Brian, um, I guess the question is, uh, what causes us to sin? Um, you know, if we're talking about it, it's something of the heart, so what is it that causes us to sin? Yeah. Uh, what Newbegin says is that when we look at the Genesis story, which we examined back in Chapter 2, um, the beginning of sin is distrust in God. Uh, the root of sin is unbelief. So there's this, again, we're starting at a starting point. We're starting with an assertion. And, you know, assertions can't always be defended because they're just starting points. They're assertions. But if you grant this, the system or the, the train of logic all fits, right? So the assertion is God is the source from which all things that exist exist. Um, and God is love. And he created man in his own image. So that means that man is supposed to live by his love and for his love and respond to his love with more love. So that's what it means when, you know, the Apostle John says that God is love. It's at the very uh, heart of God. And so when man begins to distrust God, um, that is the beginning of all sin because Man is, in a sense, rejecting that love. And from that, all these like bad consequences flow. Uh, because man is made in God's image uh, in order to know and love God. He can contradict his own nature by not answering uh, God's love with his own answering love. But he can't actually destroy his nature. So if he doesn't love and trust God, he has to love and trust something else. And ultimately, 
what ends up happening is man loves himself. And so sin involves uh, man becoming self-obsessed in a way, uh, unduly self-concerned, selfish, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Martin Luther talked about this. Uh, he talked about sin being curved in on oneself. Instead of glorifying God, we're glorifying ourselves. You know, I, I used to uh, really struggle with the idea of glorifying God uh, or that language, that that is the highest goal of man to glorify God. Because to me, it made God sound kind of like a petty tyrant or like a dictator demanding, you know, his people love him in order to make himself feel better for, for himself. But when right. you understand okay. that we were created for fellowship with God and that God loves us and we answer him back with love and that that love ennobles us and empowers us, uh, it's a very different picture. It's a lot more like father-son or, you know, father-child instead of, um, you know, like distant, right you know tyrannical yeah and slaves yeah and that's also interesting how you kind of put it like that um because i was thinking of like why would we not trust god and yeah. part of why we would not would be if we see god as a tyrant or you know as a king or like someone who is only concerned of um, themselves right. um but this is kind of different and i think maybe a good way of explaining is like believing in your parents and or trusting your parents of what right. they um have to say you know as a kid like my parents said don't go there or don't go out after this time or whatever it may be and you would do the opposite because since usually you didn't like being told what to do um you don't really um you don't really trust them ultimately mm -hmm. but yeah. you would also see it as kind of like this like this tyrant, not, I mean, that's a very strong term, um, but as someone as who's like a ruler, or someone who's dominant, someone who feels unfair, um, because since, you know, you trust your own intentions, you trust that um, you can make the best decisions, um, which over time you kind of figure out it's not ultimately true. Um, we're kind of fallible, so. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, what ends up happening when man does not trust God is that uh, human beings, uh, men and women, we start relying upon ourselves instead. Because, and this is kind of what I was trying to make clear earlier, and I'm not sure if I, I did, but because man was created for love, it is inevitable that we will love. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, we're you repeat or elaborate? Yeah, we're, we're going to make something the most important thing in our lives. And okay. I think what um, what at least New Beginning is claiming here is that what ends up happening in like the practical life of human beings is that if we don't put God first, we may think we're putting other human beings first or like our spouse or our children or whatever. But when God is not first, what we're really doing is we're ultimately going to be elevating ourselves in God's position. And we're going to be putting ourselves first. And it, and it may 
it may take some time to like really map that out and understand how you know when you say you're you know, doing things to honor your parents really you're just doing things to make yourself feel better um, or make yourself feel more secure or make yourself feel like uh, the kind of admirable person who takes care of your parents and uh, enjoys their love and affection in return um, but yeah that that the ultimate consequence is that we have placed ourselves in God's place right does that make sense yeah no, that's interesting um an idea that you, like everything that we do is now just centered on ourselves or our self-interest to help someone else is just for our own pride or our own self-righteousness but bringing that idea of that we're being like the center um that with sin the root of it is putting us as maybe god or whatever you want to call it whatever that title is making ourselves the center yeah. and the idea of sin and uh, also of it's interesting because i think it's, isn't it only humans can self self-reflect or view themselves outside of themselves or things are happening to us versus any other animal um there's the idea of like the ego or the conscious this that's able to view itself and see things centering around itself i might be incorrect in some of that but i guess what i'm trying to say is that this is something that's very unique um to the nature of uh humanity yeah i mean i i think i, I follow what you're saying it's like it's the nature of human consciousness to have a certain perspective. You have a perspective on yourself, you have a perspective on the world, but the sinful tendency is for you to make your perspective the center of the universe. And so you make the way you see the world and you interpret the world like the dominant worldview. And, and it's almost inescapable. You can't escape the fact that you have a certain perspective um but there are, because that's not checked by acknowledging that there is a higher perspective that is truer than your perspective that fact that lack of acknowledgement is what leads to all this corruption and that's also interesting because since if we're talking about salvation that means yeah. if we have our own perspective and if other people have their own perspectives, that means that there's, if we're just relying on our own different perspectives, we're obviously going to um, approach conflict. I mean, there's obviously going to be some things that are, are yeah. in harmony or things we agree on. But if we're just going off of one person's perspective and going on over time, that's not going to be enough. It seems like there needs to be a grander perspective, the perspective of God or the perspective of like the infinity of God's intention for creation. Right, right. And, and actually that that's what, in the biblical story, leads to the multiplication and intensification of sin. Mm -hmm. uh, sin is like this huge death spiral that just, the corruption starts within the heart of the human soul not trusting God. But the ultimate consequences of it are like civilizational or societal. Right. Can you, can you explain that? Or what would be an example of that, of it spiraling or becoming worse and worse? Yeah. I mean, I think maybe the 
the best way to do it is maybe just kind of talk you through um, what Newbegin talks about. And I'm, I'm looking at the part where he's saying unbelief, anxiety, and the lie, section C. I think that's page 26. And basically what happens is man starts to operate or behave as if uh, he were the inter center of the world, as though his own good were the most important thing in the world. But deep in his heart, he knows that this is a lie. He knows that he is not the center of the world. He knows he can't control the, the world. That in many ways, he's not even in control of his own life or even in control of what he does. He's a mystery to himself. Uh, and there are all sorts of things that threaten his sense of control, his sense that he is the center of the world. And so that produces anxiety within him, right? Uh, would you yeah would you describe that as like insecurity or um, shame um, how would you describe that um, this idea that like there is a deep sense of a lie yeah I mean I think there is a sense of like internal shame and guilt um, but it, there, it, shame and guilt also become weapons by which he tries to like externalize his anxiety uh, in order to overcome like his perceived threats uh, and ultimately the like looming threat of death right at the end of his existence he tries to safeguard himself by exerting and accumulating power uh, okay. power over people and one of the ways that you exercise power over people is through like shame and blame right so when right. I think it's interesting that when God confronts Adam and Eve with their sin, what do they do? They automatically start blaming, right? Uh, I think we talked about this in an earlier chapter where they do that. But this is something that starts to spread throughout society. Uh, there's actually a really good French philosopher who talks about this, uh, Rene Girard. Mm -hmm. you were... If you guys are interested in like that idea of social contagion or uh, mimetic theory where people start uh, multiplying shame and blame in, you know, as a means of trying to control their internal anxiety. Uh, they should read uh, The Scapegoat by Rene Girard. But anyway, this is kind of how sin starts to multiply and starts to become societal instead of, uh, you know, at, it, when bad things start to happen to me in a village, I start to believe those problems are not just random, that, you know, just random facts of life, but they're the problem of, I mean, they're the uh, the fault of the untouchable cast in the village. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and it's like... We, uh, and if we just kept those people in their place, everything would be fine. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Also in the sense of that, like, I think there's a like a thinking of, or it might be in wooden psychology, that like the more anxious or stressed you are, the more you feel like things are happening to you or a sense of you're more likely to blame other people or feel like you're insecure of the things that are given to you. And as a result, you blame a certain group or this person or whatever it may be, um, rather than to be able to see things holistically. Anxiety also taints the way that we see things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um... And the more 
what is sad or tragic is that the more successful human beings are at um, exerting control over the environment, the more they are blind to the truth that ultimately they cannot maintain control over the world. Um, and this dishonesty eventually starts corrupting even uh, human beings conscience their sense of what is right or wrong because they've been violating deep within them their sense of right and wrong all along by lying to themselves and pretending that they can be in control of you know the world um, and that's what leads to human beings doing evil things, believing that they're good and convincing themselves that the evil things they're doing are good. And so um, that's why, you know, Nubian writes, uh, this is why Jesus had to speak such terrible words to the Jewish church leaders who crucified him in order to make them understand that although they said, we see, they were really blind. Sin creates blindness, but those who are blinded do not know that they are blind. As St. Paul says, they hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Basically, what Nubigan's pointing out here is the way that um, the more we are caught up in these systems of sin that we start to build, um, the harder and harder it, it becomes for us to extricate ourselves from these systems we've kind of like embedded ourselves in. Yeah, that, that makes sense, um, because you almost become part of these new systems. Um and like you're part of whatever culture or whatever like system that brought you up or whatever privilege or however you want to describe it um and maybe a way you can label it is they become idols um whether it be for success or um wealth or security or your family they all become different idols those different systems that we put our trust in um they become God almost, because since we believe there's um, power and there's goodness in that and serving that is good and not serving the, that system is evil. Yeah, I mean, so basically if you're tracking the argument so far in the chapter, it's, it, the argument is that distrust of God leads to the lie, belief in the lie. So whenever you distrust something, you are automatically giving credence or giving greater belief to something else, right? And so if God is defined as total truth, then to distrust God automatically means that you're believing some alternate lie. And what is the lie? The lie that human beings turn to instead is that there is some better way to organize the universe that they themselves can come up with, that we ourselves can come up with. Um, that's the lie, that we should be in control and that we can be in control. And that lie, persisting in that lie, living in that lie, produces this great anxiety that we were talking about. And then in order to sort of assuage that anxiety or um, somehow address that anxiety, we start putting our trust in other things to help us, like, order our anxiety. And that's what leads to idolatry, like you were talking about, Benoit. Um, they, we exchange trust in God for trust in other things 
created things, uh, derivative things, things that are lesser than God, and we invest them with um, divine significance, and we put our trust in them, and we think, if I can just, you know, um, yeah, for different people, it's different things. Like in ancient cultures, it was actually like literally idol statues. You know, if I worship this idol statue, if I make sacrifices before this idol statue, my life will be good. In our, you know, modern age, idolatry doesn't really operate in that kind of like very tangible way. It's a lot more trusting intangible things. If I'm able to save enough to buy a house, right? So financial security, that can be an idol. That's the thing I'm really living in. That's the thing I'm putting my trust in. Um, the American dream, that can be an idol. I think it's a common idol for a lot of uh, children of immigrants. Yeah, and that's also interesting. It's like, yeah, the American dream or like the meritocracy. It's like, you know, we. I think why it's hard to view those things as idols is because since we've received a lot from it you know yeah. we do good yeah. well like we do well in school and you know we go to this college or we make our parents happy and it becomes this feedback loop of like working hard and then you get gratification um and i we can't really blame people for you know believing these idols because since it's kind of worked for people to some extent i mean yeah. at least for the beginning you know it's like it served my parents and a lot of other parents well the idea of the american dream or the the idea of working hard you know and then you can have your children can live a better life um it served us well and it's the model we kind of operate um so it seems almost impossible to view that as being an idol or view that as being wrong yeah i mean i think you really put your, your finger on something really important there, which is that idolatry persists because to some extent, it seems like it works, right? Like to some extent, in the ancient cultures, you know, like they believed when they sacrificed to the wooden statue at a certain time of the year, and then the rain started to come the next week and they had a good harvest, like it seems right. to work, right? Right. Uh, in the same way, like people pursuing the American dream, a lot of them are able to achieve greater financial stability and success and even wealth, right? Uh, so to some extent, it seems to work. And yet, this kind of shifts us. That if you guys are looking at your books, we're at the end of page 28 and at the beginning of page 29. Um, what ends up happening is that uh, idolatry leads to further bad effects, right? So man is, again, we're going back to the starting point. Man is made for God. Human beings are made for God who is infinite. And that means if we're made for an infinite God, that means that our desires are infinite. And so finitude cannot satisfy us. And so think of it this way. If you start to put your ultimate tr trust in marriage, marriage ultimately is finite. Um, there's, even if you have the best marriage possible, death will part you, right? Marriage on its own is not able to satisfy the deepest longings 
of your heart for a love that will never die. Um, and that's like a hard truth. And so if you live for marriage, eventually you're going to exhaust your sense of satisfaction. Um, you're, there's going to be like a looming despair in the background of your life um, because your desire is for something infinite. And it's going to manifest itself in ways that that dissatisfaction or that despair is going to manifest itself in ways that appear outside your marriage, but also inside your marriage. And so what ends up happening is you start to harm the very thing that you say is the most important thing to you. So that's just one example of this dynamic of how idolatry ends up harming the thing that is the idol itself too. Uh, could you explain that? Uh, an example of marriage, how would it um, harm um, your understanding or the marriage itself? Yeah, so when you start to put a lot of pressure on the marital relationship as like the primary relationship it, to the point where it becomes an idol, you start having expectations of your spouse, um, expectations for total comfort, total mm -hmm. affection, total understanding, total forgiveness, that the spouse, because the spouse is a finite creature, right, is never able to actually meet. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's almost as if um, you uh, you romanticize the idea of marriage and the idea that it would like it would fulfill all your like all your needs that yes. one person can yeah. suffice all of that. Which, when you think about it, realistically, that's impossible. Like we all have different personalities, we all offer different things, and one person can't offer like can offer every single thing. They're gonna have faults, they're fallible, and they're also gonna expire. They're gonna die, as morbid as that might sound. Like marriage only lasts for so long. Yeah. Um, and it's something that's finite. Um, <laughs> there's limitations to people, and you can only expect so much from it. Right. And, and that's the thing is like, your desire is, is for something infinite. But because you are not putting your ultimate trust and affection in something that's infinite and instead pouring it into something that's finite, you are going to um, be, disappointment, be disappointed when it doesn't provide you uh, the thing that you're actually really looking for. And that's going to lead to resentment that will hurt the very thing that has become so important to you. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So backtracking we talked about sin and the root of that being unbelief and then going into idolatry um so the next thing that newbigin writes is about sensuality and lust so how does that connect yeah so basically what ends up happening is that God um, responds to man's desires for uh, finite things in in the place of the infinite of his infinite self. He responds to that by giving people over to the things that they actually desire. Um, so 
because finite things cannot fully satisfy and yet our desires are infinite, um, we start to lust for more of the finite thing. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to think of an example to kind of help make this more concrete. But does Is that it so almost far? like a counteraction? Because these finite things can't suffice us, the only thing we do is kind of overdo it or lust over it even more or yeah. seek it even more to combat this feeling of this is not filling up my need. Right. So, I mean, you could almost think of it in terms of like there's a, a there's a hunger inside, right? And I think that I can fill that hunger with food. But the more I eat, the more the craving gets more, the, the craving becomes more and more acute. Um, right. Because ultimately what I'm filling myself with are things that are finite. And what I need is something infinite. Um, I think that's part of the reason why, like, when Jesus meets the woman at the well in uh, the Gospel of John, right, the Samaritan woman mm -hmm. at the well, he says, I can give you water that will never run out. Uh, he's talking about the infinity of himself. Like, the reason why Jesus can actually satisfy is he gives us the water that actually quenches our thirst because it never runs dry. It's infinite. It's inexhaustible. Uh, it's actually able to meet our desire for the infinite. But the contrary to that is when we try to feed our, or we try to satiate our hunger for the infinite with finite things. When we start to do that, like God's response is, it's, it's called his wrath, but it's also kind of like him saying, you can go your own way. You know, he's, he's permitting us to give ourselves over to those finite things. But what, what the claim of the Bible is, um, especially in like uh, the first few chapters of Romans, which Newbegin quotes from here, the claim of the Bible is that when we go after those things, we're going to start lusting after more and more. So if you know, we think we're going to find ultimate satisfaction in sex, for example. The more sex we have, the more the gnawing abyss in our hearts is going to manifest, and we're going to long for more and more and more sex. Not just because of the physical pleasure. We're not just chasing the physical pleasure. We are trying to satisfy some deep existential need, some existential longing for the infinite. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I guess where I'm kind of interested in is that, you know, you can, like, be a glutton or you can be lusting over a certain thing. And, you know, you'll hear a lot of celebrities be like, you know, they'll go chase this and that and that, and then they feel realize it's not enough, and then they kind of come to a resolution. Um, so do you think that man himself or human humanity can come to that um to that um to that understanding that these things are finite or does it require an understanding of god being an infinite god and being able to suffice us can we come to that own understanding just because since we'll get exhausted by chasing after these things um i think it has to be shown um uh, I, I think some people even realize what they're doing like you can have an argument with someone you can show uh, you can 
you can say to someone, hey, this is what you're doing. But to a certain extent, we are so caught up in trying to satisfy our, for lack of a better word, like lust, uh, for finite things to satisfy our infinite cravings that we can't extricate ourselves from that process on our own. Okay. Uh, and so I think that's part of the reason why um, God, and we're jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but like the only real answer is God himself intervening to extricate us from that kind of like death spiral that we've put ourselves in. Right. So continuing off of this spiral, um, we go from sin, root of that being unbelief, idolatry, sensuality, and lust. The next thing that Newbigin brings up, or rather the last one, is envy, strife, and murder. Yeah. We are all competing for finite goods to satisfy our infinite cravings. And that competition leads to rivalry. It leads to envy, strife, and murder, like you're saying. Um, we start to believe that if you have, then I cannot have, right? So we start to have this like scarcity mindset. Or like zero sum. Yeah. And the idea of like, if someone wins, the other person loses. Has and to lose. Right. Right. And because of that, because we believe that that is just the way the world is, you know, even if we read our Bibles or, you know, pray, at, in our heart of hearts, that's what we believe. That's the way we think the world is. If you are successful, that means that I cannot be successful. We have hierarchical rankings and a belief that um, there's only so much to go around. And so we have to get what we, we have to get mine, right? Every person has to get their own. Uh, right. That's so interesting. All all. It's interesting how you say it's like an idea of scarcity. Um, and we're talking about uh, things being finite. And if things, if you live out of scarcity, and things are finite, um, you're going to believe things are zero-sum. You're going to believe that if someone gets this, then I don't receive that. Right. And it puts you, or it doesn't allow you to understand the infinite God. It doesn't allow you to understand the God who is infinite and how he'll provide for you. Um, yeah. So we kind of get stuck in this loop. We get stuck in this idea of different different sides, different kingdoms rising and falling, different powers trying to take control over one another. And we get in this constant loop of some group getting ahead and then people feeling like they're oppressed. And then that group tries to take power and it becomes like a cycle almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why two of the most significant miracles of Jesus, like miracles that are attested in all four Gospels, uh, is when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's it's an example of his infinity, of his ability to provide, that the scarcity mindset is a lie. Um, and also, I think this is part of the reason why God in his sovereign wisdom ordered things so that the climax of human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if you really believe, if you really believe in the resurrection, then the scarcity mindset makes no sense. 
the resurrection, if you really believe that a man bodily came back from the dead and has this like glorified body um, that is incorruptible, then the way we live makes no sense because we shouldn't be afraid of anything. Um, right. We're going to get new bodies. The entire the scarcity mindset uh, is not rational if the resurrection is true. So what are the implications or what does that mean of how do we live right now in this world today? Yeah, and I, again, I think that might be jumping ourselves a little bit at talking more about the salvation piece of it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's useful to talk about right now. Basically, if the resurrection is true, it is the undoing of this entire pattern that we're seeing. Because then the resurrection shows that instead of not trusting God, we should trust God because he is the God who resurrects us, right? And then instead of the lie of uh, ourselves being at the center of the world, that we need to control the world, we can instead believe the truth that there is a good God who is in control and we can trust that God to be in control because he will order everything in the world perfectly. And the result of that, of that trust and belief in the truth about who God is, um, is going to be, instead of false worship or idolatry, it's going to be right worship. It's going to be correct worship of the true God. And that right worship, instead of like lust for, um, finite things that can't really satisfy us, it's going to lead to satisfaction, real satisfaction, real joy, um, peace. You know, instead of alienation, it's going to be peace. And what is the result of that? Instead of envy, strife, and murder, it's going to be real human brotherhood, uh, real ability to be generous with our resources, because now we're not looking at our resources as something that we need to hoard because the world resources in the world are scarce, but as something that we can share to meet the needs of people, uh, right. the most vulnerable and marginalized people, because we believe that there is an that the world is excessive. There's abundance. There's more than enough for everyone, because we believe that at the heart of the universe, uh, that behind the universe, that powering the universe, is this infinite God, uh, the God of resurrection. And so all of this, this entire sinful pattern is overturned um, by the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Again, that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I think the contrast helps you understand what sin does and how it's a lie. Again, you have to start at the starting point, right? Like the fundamental question is, is there a God? And is that God good in this way that the Bible is presenting him to be? But if you start at that starting point, you start to understand the logic of what the biblical story is showing us. 